this prayer to the Father. Amen. Amen. I'd love for you to take your copy of God's Word out. Take your Bible out and turn to Isaiah chapter 65. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And you can take one of those and you actually can take one of those if you need a Bible or have a friend that needs a Bible that would like one. And we would love to give that to them as a gift or to yourself if you need that. So Isaiah chapter 65, we've got some uh, great stuff happening here at the end of the service too. We've got uh, our family down front here that's going to be saying yes to being members at the at the church here, and so we've got that coming in a few minutes. And also while you're getting ready with Isaiah 65, just another cool thing that wrapped up this last week. As you know, uh, I have the privilege of leading Child Evangelism Fellowship for Southern California. We have the offices for that whole operation here on our campus, so it is our major uh, thing that we support as a church, and it, uh, we just finished up having a castle booth at the LA County Fair, finished up on uh, Monday this last week, and I just wanted to give you a little report on that as you guys are ready uh, with uh, the scripture there. Uh, there were about uh, almost 1,400 people that went through our booth and heard the gospel uh, during the month of May there at the fair. So 1,383 people, that's not just went in and looked at some flyers. They sat down and heard a uh, 15-minute story about the gospel and what that means. And uh, even in this day and age, when uh, there is plenty of awful stuff going on around the world, it's pretty neat to know that 411 of those people accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior uh, over the last month in that little booth that Child Evangelism Fellowship puts together. And uh, we play a big part in that, everyone. So that's pretty cool. And I think uh, we need to just be thankful to the Lord that there are 411 more people that said yes to Jesus over the last month just in that one ministry alone. Is that cool? Is that pretty cool? That's awesome. Isaiah 65, can you believe it? If you've been with us this whole time, next week is the last one, the last of this incredible walk through the book of Isaiah that has taken well over a year, year and a half about, and we could have gone even a lot slower and uh, hit some more things, but uh, we... Uh, are uh, blessed to have walked through this together. And Isaiah 65, in a continuation of where we've been the last few weeks, is a response to prayer. And I don't know about you, but I would say our world needs a massive intervention. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. It would just seem to me that it'd be one of those moments where we sit down with our culture and just say, you know what, everyone? You're crazy. All of this is crazy. We need a massive intervention. And what we see here in chapter 65 is that there really is only one who is capable of that, and that is God. The gospel, the gospel, everyone, is for souls in need of massive intervention. God wants to change our story from one of, of victimhood to one of being a child uh, of the king. And even if you're not interested in him, he is still interested in you. He's eager to know you and to develop a a fulfilling relationship with you. And with God, you can be everything bad and ugly possible. You could be the biggest failure on the planet, but he intervenes and changes everything. 
Now, I will also tell you, if you think you're hot stuff, if you think you've got something to offer God, the deal's off. But if you see yourself as a soul in need of saving, God is ready right now. And Isaiah has taught us to put this, oh God, oh Lord, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down as we saw last week. He, he taught us to long for God to come down, make his presence felt in this generation. I mean, if you go back over to Isaiah 63 verse 15 for just a moment, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. And it feels odd, but that's, that's how we should pray. And Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66 is God's answer to the prayer. He promises an intervention of a magnitude of something never seen before. He's like, oh no, I'm not going to come in and just put a patch on your life. No. As we will see, he promises a new heaven and a new earth. Rather than God restraining himself, Isaiah 65 shows us a progression into the fact that God is eager to intervene. And he is eager to be found by people who aren't even, even longing for him. And so the structure of the text begins and ends with a vision of the eager God, the findable God, the God who says, here am I. And so let's take a look, starting in verse 1, at this eagerness of God now. As it says there in verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. And it's kind of, actually, when you think about it, not a real dignified picture of God. Here am I, here am I. He's trying to get the attention of who? All of us self-important little people who order our lives in one massive snub of God. But God still wants to be noticed. And he humiliates himself to get on our radar screens. And you may even kind of bristle at that. You know, God does not humiliate himself, Scott. He did. God became what for us? He became man. He became flesh. Taking the form of what? A servant, a slave. And we see that in Philippians 2. So God is so persistent in his overtures that many of the people who find him weren't even looking for him. And it reminds me of what I was just talking about before the sermon even started with that L.A. County Fair. Do you think anyone was going to the L.A. County Fair thinking they were going to accept Christ that day? They weren't looking for him. But he found them. And he chose there and then to do that. God makes the first move. And that is the way of God. God does not require us to have a spiritual pedigree. He does not require us to have 14 special talents. What does God say? Here am I. With a heart awakening power. And sometimes it absolutely is crazy when we watch who says yes to that. 
It's crazy. The New Testament says that when the gospel is being preached, the voice of Christ comes through us. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Through us, even us, God is saying to our city here in Los Angeles and to this area, through us, here am I, and I am so ready to meet you. You don't even know that you are seeking me yet. And what is great is in our church, like many other Bible-believing churches, the church is where people who wouldn't be caught dead in church find God. And so we see the eagerness of God now saying, here Here I am to us. And going on in verse 2 then, I I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. I mean, who knew that he would put in their iPads and... Anyway. Isn't that kind of funny? You didn't think I... It's exactly what happened. We're following our own devices. Uh, you see those videos where people just collapse into water fountains and stuff like that because they were watching their stupid device instead of water. Anyway, I was picturing that this week when I saw that. I was like, I, I got to mention that. But God is spreading out his hands. He's pleading. He's begging. He's patient. He's given ample opportunity. And with some people, it's a wasted effort. I get that. Why? Because... The problem is us. The the problem, as the New American Standard Bible translation says, instead of following their, their own devices, it says following their own thoughts. And that's what it really means by devices there. The structures that we assemble in our thoughts to manage God and keep Him at a distance because if we see Him clearly, in his grace and in his humility, it is, it's counterintuitive to everything that we are as humans. It's threatening to us. But there's an irony here that we can't miss with the fact that he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. And in the first century, the Apostle Paul noticed something that was really bugging him. He saw that comparatively few Jewish people accepted Jesus as their Messiah. But Gentiles were running to him, running to Jesus in droves. And Paul answers the question, well, why isn't the opposite happening? You know, Israel had a rich background in God. They had been schooled in the Messianic prophecies for centuries. Accepting Jesus should have been easy. But many turned away, and at the same time, the Gentiles, who had never even been coveted, covenanted with God, had no training in the Bible, they got it. And Paul, searching for an answer, guess where Paul found that? Here. He found it here in Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. Romans 10. If you want to jump over there, verses 20 and 21. And Paul says in Romans 10, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me, Romans 21. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And what he found there in Isaiah is that Israel's problem was not a lack of information or a lack of preparation. The the problem was actually summed up in one word. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 65. I spread out my hands all the day to a, circle it, underline it, whatever you need to do, rebellious people. That word in the original language, means rebellious. 
Okay, I'll give you a few more. You're not allowed to do that, right? Stubborn. Rigid. Never satisfied. Anyone in this room guilty? What it is, is it's the opposite of the, con- the contrite and lowly spirit. In Isaiah's prophetic eyes, see God explaining himself, being reasonable, opening his arms, patiently pleading. But for some people, that is not even enough. It's what Paul saw in, saw in his day, God reaching out to his covenant people again and again through the prophets, for example, but supremely through Christ. And it just didn't get in. It just didn't sink in. Why? Well, the people he had loved so much wouldn't listen. The people with the most exposure and the best opportunity rejected Christ, while the people on the outside with all of the disadvantages loved him. John 1, 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So what we learn here is that accepting Christ, being in Christ, does not run along bloodlines. Our children, our grandchildren, the children of the next generation to come, yes, they need more and more exposure to the gospel because the world is giving us less and less of what is right So we need to bring them up in the Lord. But you need to understand that everyone needs the Holy Spirit-given miracle of responsiveness to the gospel. Because by our very nature, we don't respond. Do you realize, everyone, probably don't sit around and think about this, but I do. Every generation of the church is technically about 20 years away from apostasy. Every generation is technically 20 years away from apostasy, apart from the receiving what? The mercy of God. We need Him that much. Because on our own devices, we will move away. Wave after wave after wave of God's grace is needed. Every generation. I mean, Isaiah 1.9, if you go all the way back to where we started... If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The remnant. It goes deeper. You see, when Isaiah's people, the Israelites, rejected God, here's what's interesting, man. If you, if you want answers to the craziness that's going on in our world today, when you look around, I mean, I'm going to just shoot straight with you because it's right, it's right here in this. When people reject God, they don't become non-religious. Now, you may want to write that down. When people reject God, they don't become non-religious. They actually become even more religious but they follow their own thoughts, their own ideas, their own intuitions, and are pagan. Have you ever wondered why are people that are trying all of this crazy stuff in our society, why are they so militant on you've got to be like them or accept them for what they're now saying is right? You, you, you go, man, these, these people are like serious. It's because it's a religion. It is a pagan religion. 
what's going on around us. So people actually become even more religious, and we see that here in Isaiah 65, where we see in verse 3, it says, a people who provoke me to my face continually, catch this, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. And what's happening is a completely different worship of stuff and other things other than God other than the worship that God authorized through Moses. The people couldn't find God the way that they were trying with this junk. And the reason was is they didn't want to find God. They were intrigued by mysterious rites of the surrounding pagan cultures. So... I, I, I need to get this in, it's like, I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm pounding into people, and I, know so, and I know some of you have been believers for a long time, and you get it, but we have to be able to communicate this as well. We have to be able to communicate this as well. The human mind is deeply pagan. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you have sin in you, in the sin nature, sin is opposite of God. I get people say, well, but I'm basically a good person, so I didn't have that far to go to get back to God. No, you still had a gulf you could not get over yourself. Only Christ offers that path back to God, that forgiveness back to God. You cannot get there yourself. The, the brokenness of the human spirit, soul that we are born into cannot be fixed by us. See, our natural thoughts do not submit gladly to God, but what we do is we end up looking for ways to manipulate his power for us. When the Israel of Paul's day rejected God's grace in Christ, they still were thoroughly religious. They were following their own thoughts, in essence, no different from any other attempt to harness the divine. If you connect Romans 10 verses 1 through 3 with, with Romans 11, 1 through 6, you can see this zeal for this legalistic self-righteousness is actually comparable to the worship of Baal. Isaiah 65, 5, who say, these people, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says Yahweh, because they have burned incense on the mountains and reproached me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their formal, former work into their bosom. Every man-made religion, everyone, whether, whatever it is, you know what? Every man-made religion ends up not only dishonoring God, but it ends up destroying people. Human religion, whatever form it takes, is a mechanism for self-righteous exclusion and comparing yourself with some elitism of self-exaltation. I want to live the way how? I want to live. And thus, if this makes me feel better, and I'm exalting who? Myself. I will lift myself up. And I will post it online. And make people have to say, oh, you're awesome. It... 
it feels holy to them. But God says, you know what? All of that self-righteous junk that you're doing, what does it say there? That provokes me. You're doing it. Isn't it interesting? It says you're doing it into my face continually. Isn't it wild when you see some people that are just in their, you know, this is the way I want to be, who I want to be, this is who I am, and don't tell me any, you know, all of this type of stuff. And, you know, the, you know the, the God of the Bible is this, that, and the other thing. And what are they doing? They're doing exactly what Isaiah says, uh, writes here, what God is saying. You're doing this in my face continually. And one of the most important discoveries for any of us that we must make in all of life is to figure out the difference between true holiness and false holiness. Have you figured it out yet? I know some of you have. Many of you have. But here's the problem. We don't even always know evil when we get involved in it. What does Satan masquerade as? An angel of light. Which means that what did... What did Satan do with Jesus when he tempted him? He took Scripture and took it out of context and twisted it. So here's the problem. You don't always know evil when you get involved in it because sometimes it presents itself in a very religious form. But we must know that even in that, God is offended. That (laughs) there's smoke in my nostrils. That picture to me is like, yeah, I don't want to see what happens after that. You see, any religion, however much it may even quote the Bible, that rebels against the authority of God's grace and sets its own self-serving preconditions is evil. You see it all the time. You know, there's ad campaigns everywhere, again, for Scientology. And they, this time around, are quoting a bunch of Bible verses. And you go, uh, I don't think that's what you guys believe. Actually, I know they don't. Because they rebel against the authority of God's grace and they set up their own self-serving preconditions and don't follow God's word. Now, God's offended. We get that. God has been pleading and he's offended. But the same God that is offended is eager to save. He welcomes any sinner who will reach out and grasp his hand extended in Christ. And he's still today saying, here am I. It's what he's saying to us right now. And we need to dig into the fact of the authenticity of that fact with God. In verse 8, as God says the following, Thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not make it a ruin, for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my slaves in order not to make all of them a ruin. Now, this is a metaphor. Someone is harvesting grapes to make wine. He cuts a cluster down from the vine. Some of the grapes are good, others are bad, but you don't throw out the whole bunch just because some of the grapes have gone sour. If some taste good, you keep the whole bunch and you separate the good from the bad. This is the picture of what God does among all who claim to be his people. He he discriminates carefully. He looks beneath the surface of things before he says yes or no, throws it away. Isaiah wants... Uh, to correct one of the hidden assumptions common even today. Many people assume that their outward identification, even with a church today, is enough to get by. 
You know, and it's like, well, you know, I go to church, I hang out, I hear Scott say some God words from the Bible, some Jesus talk. But Isaiah confronts that misunderstanding of like, well, yeah, I go to church, so I must be okay, with the true understanding of the doctrine of the remnant. (laughs) He's saying the truth is God is patiently putting up with spiritually artificial people who are mixed in with those who are saved. But a harvest is coming when, guess what, the true and the false will be forever separated Going on into verse 9, I will bring forth a seed from Jacob and a possessor of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall possess it, and my slaves will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Acre, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you who forsake Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune... And who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny. I will disdain you with the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Because I called but you did not answer. I spoke but you did not hear. And you did what was evil in my eyes. And chose that in which I was not pleased. So then what is the difference between the people God will accept and the people God will reject? We see it there. It's the difference between having Christ and not having Christ. God saves sinners through Christ. That's the gospel. How do you know if you have Christ then? That's what Isaiah is actually explaining in there. His answer is authentic faith. Authentic faith in Christ proves itself with a few very key things, an openness to God's word and a delight in God's pleasures. But not listening when God speaks and not choosing what God likes is how you ruin yourself. Being deaf to his word and dull to his delight, even while still hanging out with a bunch of Christians, is hypocrisy. And it's a deal breaker in the sight of God. You know, you set a table of fortune, fill cups of mixed uh, wine for destiny. Well, I'll I'll take care of that with the sword. It's insightful. Back in Isaiah's day, people contrived idolatrous rituals to bend fate and luck their way. It's like, okay, I'm going to read God's word. But just to make sure a little luck may come my way, I'm going to put some crystals all over my car and in my house and places like that because supposedly they got some like really mystic power to them. And, you know, it can't hurt. And we kind of make fun of that, but people do that all the time. You know, I I believe in God, but I, I, I better do this too just in case. You set a table for fortune, fill cups of mixed wine for, for destiny. You see, down deep inside, there's this fear of what is in the future. Uh, insecurity, there is a passion for control, uh, un, kind of bendable will that happens in us that looks for any way at some time but, but God's way. Have you ever caught yourself in that situation? I, I know what God's word says, but, but I, I want to do this because I think this is a better option for me. There's a poem that once said this. It still says this. I'm sorry. The poem says this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And our culture is becoming more and more blunt in saying that. But to be the master of one's fate and the captain of one's soul, yes, that can somewhat feel reassuring. 
But that's why people go to idols. Because when you go to an idol, it's something you can control. It's kind of like I'm going to climb any mountain except God's holy mountain. Because it's hard for me to trust God and surrender to his will. There's a fear in many people's lives that if I yield to God, it's going to ruin everything. And if, if, I, if I live for God, there goes my finances. I got to give stuff to him. Or, you know, just different silly stuff like that. But here's the deal. Our mechanisms for control are disasters. Do you hear that? Our mechanisms for controls end up being disasters. Our holy mountains end up being hellish. So how do you get out of that folly? Look again at the mercies of God in Christ and ask him to make you then a living sacrifice to his will. Have a spirit of openness to God's word. Delight in his pleasures comes from his grace. Being a servant of God, a slave of God, is more than making sure you don't do any really big bad sins. It isn't just rejecting what offends God. It's actually also embracing what delights God. It's trusting that what pleases Him will end up pleasing you as well. Yielding to His love, His ways, His future for you. Everything kind of hinges on that, everyone. Isaiah looks far, far into the future here. He's directing our thoughts all the way forward to the finality of heaven and hell. Now, in verse 12, so verse 12 looks into our lives now, right? Kind of ends right there in, in that idea in, in verse 12. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. And then it moves forward in verse 13 with our famous word that we talk around about around here a lot. Therefore, that's the official ears up, eyes up, something's happening. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, behold, my slaves will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my slaves will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my slaves will be glad, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my slaves will shout joyfully with a merry heart, but you will cry out with a pain heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and Lord Yahweh will put you to death. But my slaves will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former Distresses are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. So, what, what's, what's going on here? It's the contrast between true believers and unbelievers that's being brought out here. Difference between abundant food and hunger, plentiful drink and thirst, rejoicing and shame, between singing and wailing, between the curse of an adulterous life and a blessing. In that day, when the wrongs of earth are righted, people will use the name the God of truth when they bless themselves or when they take an oath. In other words, God will be acknowledged as the one who brings his plans to pass, who does as he says he will do. And this creating uh, God has this rejoicing that goes on. It continues in verse 17. For behold, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come upon the heart. 
But be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and, for, and her people for joy. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. Okay, that's interesting. We'll deal with that in a second. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Okay, that's interesting. We'll deal with that in a second. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for terror. For they are the seeds of those blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. All right. Scott Julian commentary time. About five seconds into this new world, all of us who are believers that are there are going to look at one another and say, uh, sickness, uh, war, uh, people saying wrong is right. Where are those people? Hmm. Can't seem to remember any of that stuff. No matter, this looks pretty cool. Because what Isaiah is letting us know here, he's painting a picture of the new heavens and the new earth to which God has been leading his people to all along. And the prophet here uses images from life that we know now to communicate life as we'll know it then. For example, the young man shall die at 100 years old. Isaiah does not mean that people will live to 100 years. And then they die. We know in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, there will be no death. What Isaiah is saying here, the life you've always longed for, but has always eluded you, always kept just out of reach, that life is what God is preparing for his servants. What you've longed for, what you're like, man, I just don't understand why life's so short. I don't understand why it ends. You know, you're, you're grasping for more of the, what we're designed for, right? We're designed forever. That's why death is so painful to us. The place to which God is taking us in this human experience that we have actually then defines the very meaning of joy. C.S. Lewis, I love what he said. He came to this conclusion in his life. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy completely, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest it to the real thing. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to the other country and help others do the same. In the end, there will only be one commandment for God's servants to obey forever and ever. Go back to verse 18. Did you catch that? What are we supposed to do forever? But be glad and rejoice forever. Rejoice forever in which I create. And we're, we're praising Him. We're rejoicing in Him. I, I love it. Jeremy Taylor, it was an Anglican bishop in the 17th century, summed up that verse by saying this, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. Well, see, hell, we don't like talking about hell, right? Unless it's about other people being in hell that we decide are in hell. Then we're totally okay with it. But hell is simply eternal souls who didn't want God getting their 
own way. Heaven is eternal souls who long for God, getting all that God made them for. See, God himself, in infinite, joyful measure, gives the fullness of himself to us in Christ. And and new as it is in what it will be, the setting for our lasting joy, it's going to be this new heaven and earth, similar to what we live in now. Uh, I mean, to some degree, it's not going to be completely alien and unrecognizable, but the idea is that we're finally home. And who are we home with? The Lord. 24 and it will be that before they call I will answer and while they are still speaking I will hear I love that have you ever had someone answer something correctly before you got all the words out the, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. You know, basically what Isaiah is saying is your hope needs to be pretty big because what God is promising for his people is huge. Is your hope big enough to then include, as we see in the book of Isaiah, all the nations, all the people coming to him? Is your hope big enough where wolves and lambs and lions are all joyful creatures thrown in there for good measure? It's hope on the grand scale, and that's what we have in the gospel. It offers both the prospect of personal intimacy with God forever, a a renewed world full of his righteousness, his peace. It isn't just one or the other. God has a plan for you within this whole world of his, the new heaven, a new earth. The Lord Jesus died for this, and he will not be denied. And we are actually called when to enjoy this. Well, we're called to enjoy this now. We must begin now. Enter into Christ now. And what does he do? He recreates you now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ God has not just patched you up waiting for the future. He has made you new. And you will enjoy God forever in endless newness. Every day you and I are attempted really to throw that away. Why do so many people throw away the newness of Christ every day for this fifth-rate world? First Corinthians 2 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what we're living for. There's a lot of songs and sayings that you, you live for the weekend. No. We we live for the end. Because the new heavens and the new earth guarantee a beginning forever. So the application is actually the same for the non-believer and the believer as we close here. If you are not a Christian or if you are a believer, God is saying to every one of us, those three words. Here I am. 
Are you interested? You know, even if you are the worst person ever on the face of the planet, who we have an apostle who said he was, chief of all sinners, God's saying, here I am. I'm still here. And what he's saying is, I will save you. Look to Christ. And if you look honestly, you will conclude that he can be trusted. You can conclude that you can yield control. You can conclude that choosing what delights him will actually delight you. And what does Jesus say? And I will prepare for you a new place. A new heaven, a new earth. And as we see here in the statement of judgment and salvation, in the statement of the new heavens and the new earth, we, we see that God is eager to do this. He is eager to save. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time together today. I pray right now that as we see this answer to the prayer of rending the heavens opening and coming down, that your answer is one of salvation and judgment and a new heavens and a new earth. And Lord, we have hope in that. And Lord, I pray right now for all of us, those who do not know you, I pray that they will look to you and hear you say, here I am. And trust in you. Lord, I... I I pray for those of us who are believers today to also look at you and hear you say, here I am, don't get distracted by this world. I'm all that you need. I'm all that you will ever need. I will judge. Vengeance is the Lord's. But we look to a new heaven and a new earth and rejoice in that. And in verse 18 says, man, God, we, we need to be glad and rejoice forever. Lord, we are glad and we rejoice in you because you create in perfection things that we can't even imagine or dream of. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty, everyone.